welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. For us, that means empowering your teams to collaborate compassionately on creating high-quality software that delivers value quickly to the people that really matter, the users. My name is Claire Sudbury and my pronouns are she and her. I've been a software engineer for 21 years. I do a lot of speaking and writing on the topic of software delivery, and I'm a lead engineer with Made Tech. Change is unavoidable in our industry, but balancing change can be surprisingly difficult. Writer and independent consultant Kevlin Henney is someone I often bump into at conferences, and whenever I do, we always have the best conversations. He's full of interesting insights, so he was a great person to talk to on this topic. Hello, Kevlin. Good morning, Claire. It's so great to see you again. Uh, Likewise. Brilliant. One of the first things I wanted to ask you about was when I was looking at your bio, I noticed it didn't mention anything about blue screens of death. (sighs) And I have become aware that you are somehow associated with blue screens of death. I even actually, I got it into my head that some people call them a Kevlin Henny, but I couldn't find any Googled evidence of that. Okay. What the hell's that all about? What's what's all that about? You know, I'm going to write a blog post about it. It needs an origin story because I do get asked that. Um, so this goes back to the days when phones acquired cameras. I started taking photographs of failure screens in public places. And I would sometimes show these at conferences uh, as part of my talk, or I'd put it in the break and I'd do it in workshops as well. And then people started sending this to me. Mm-hmm. And then around 2016, a couple of people started sort of saying this. I, I saw a Kevlin Henney screen. Yeah. And that's a Kevlin Henney. And it has since appeared in the register uh, in one of the Verity Stob columns. It has also been added to Urban Dictionary. I don't know who did that. But um, so, I, you know, that's the only way I can gain any kind of credibility with my kids now. Yeah. Hey, I'm an entry on Urban Dictionary. It, it's useful and interesting in many ways. One, it's kind of fun. Uh, two, it allows me to make jokes about the fact that software developers are the largest creators of accidental installation art on the planet. <laughs> And sometimes if it's trains, train stations and things like that, people will say, hey, train provider in whatever country, you've got a you've got a Kevlin Henney uh, at this platform. It's it's, it's kind of there's a public service there as well. Yeah. But I also kind of use these as introductions to how to talk about motivation for testing from the point of view of correctness as opposed to the other aspects of testing, but also reflect on the idea that software loses its encapsulation when it fails. Mm. Up until that moment, it was beautifully, um, software is the art of creating illusions. And we create an illusion when we turn these little you know, pixels into buttons, we turn them into worlds, and it's all beautiful. And then it then it cracks, it falls apart, you know, it gets dropped on the floor, and it's, it's like anything that breaks. Mm-hmm. The fracture lines tell you something about how it's constructed. So it, it doesn't necessarily give us answers there, but it, it lets us ask questions about how was this created? What was the culture and the context in which it was created? So there's a kind of like a, there's, there's more to it than just, hey, the, that's a funny error screen. That's the starting point, but for me, that's definitely not the end point. Yeah, yeah. I love that idea of breaking the fourth wall as well. This idea that your devices are 
emulating functionality. They, they, they become an email sending device or yeah. they become a game or they become whatever you're currently using them for. But when the error appears, that illusion is broken. And I'm trying to think, what is the, the phrase that's used in uh, theatre and film not breaking the fourth wall. Suspension of disbelief, is that what Suspension we're of disbelief, yeah, that is yeah. the thing that I'm thinking of. And actually, you're in the same dance with your devices, aren't you? Exactly, yes. And it's almost as though you forget this is still the same physical object as it was a minute ago, but yeah. because I'm using it to do something entirely different, it takes on a different character in my yeah. mind. Yeah, it's like a UFO landing in the middle of a Victorian uh, drama. You know, it's just like, hang on, that doesn't belong there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we were going to talk about balancing change. Oh, yes. So let's have a go at doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me what balancing change means to you. I know it's something that you're really interested in at the moment. Yeah. What does that phrase mean? Well, first of all, I'm going to start with really interested. I have idle curiosities in a number of things. I will not pretend to be a scholar in anything, really. But I'm kind of interested by this constant tug of war that um, companies, teams and individuals are always in with change. I came across this this lovely observation a couple of years ago. It was probably the wisdom of Twitter, but it may have come from another source. And it was this idea that there are two things that humans really hate. Uh, one, things remaining the same. Two, change. <laughs> and, and that kind of captures everything about this issue of change. We recognise that change is, at one level, normal. Mm-hmm. And we also recognise that it is desirable. But on the other hand, we also like predictability, comfort, confidence and certainty. And this plays out at an individual level, but it also plays out at a company level. And we sometimes end up, this idea of balancing change, we either end up with long periods of stasis and complacency. Mm -hmm. And then by the time we need to change, it's too late. So now suddenly you're forcing people into something that is radical and guess what? That doesn't always work out. Um, in fact, it very rarely works out because it turns out that people are involved and some people will be right behind the idea of change. Some people will be against the idea of change. And those who are for change may have different ideas about what needs to be changed. Mm. But also those who prefer stasis may have different ideas about what should remain the same. I actually did some work for a company uh, years ago. I visited them kind of twice a year for about 15 years. And I visited all of their teams. And what was fascinating is by the time we kind of finished, they, the, the department was dissolved, organisational change, all of this kind of stuff. Many of the people were still there. They had incredibly good staff retention. And they were still, most people were in the same teams as when I had first met them. Wow. Okay. And that also introduced me to the idea and the awareness that actually, although we often talk about team stability as being important, these guys were too stable. In other words, there was very little knowledge sharing. Uh, there was one particular team, kind of one of the best long-term reuse strategies I've ever come across, their best technical competence, um, use of unit testing, how they used meetings, all the rest of it. These guys, absolutely brilliant. And they were right next door, partition-wise, to another team that was, they really struggled. And yet all the knowledge that was needed by the second team was with the first team, but there was no movement. See, this fascinates me because this is something that I was actually talking about yesterday, about my own life and about lockdown and about how I'm struggling with the balance between stability and flux and how I want both. 
I'm bored that everything is the same. I want change. Yeah. I, I want to do different things. I want excitement. Yeah. But I also want predictability. Yes. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I feel uncertain about the future and I don't like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to know what's going to happen. But but also what you were just talking about in terms of teams is something that I see a lot in larger organizations. I'm a big fan of the concept of the self-organizing team. Hmm. And I think people need autonomy and they need control over what they're doing and they need to feel some ownership in order for them to take responsibility and to be motivated to keep working on things. Yeah. And so therefore, it's very good to have autonomous units that have some control over what they're doing. But then you often end up with the problem that they then become silos, they become separate from one another. And what they don't do is collaborate with each other between teams and share what they know. Yeah. So it's really interesting to hear about that in the context of change. But then, of course, we have this issue that all of this learning has stayed contained in this one team. Yeah. And the change, I guess, has stayed contained. So one bit has changed and another bit hasn't. Yes. So how do we spread the change? <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's really interesting because there's no magic bullets for this one, silver or otherwise. Because one of the things I said to the lead of development, and we went out for a drink and I said, there's only one person who's seen the source code of all of your projects, and that's me. Yeah. And I'm an external. Yeah. You don't want that. And the problem is that they have become so attached to the team idea, this very siloed idea, that it was quite difficult to break that. But one of the things I tried to encourage them, and I think they were beginning to do that before, unfortunately, the whole department was closed down, was trying to move people around for at least code reviews. Yeah. Have somebody from another team join your code reviews. Because in other words, pick on something people are already doing. And one of the things they were doing was code reviews. Okay, so in other words, if, if you're going to try and do any kind of change, I mean, this is one of those ones you can pick up in a self-help book, piggyback on something else that you do. <laughs> Unfortunately, they've ended up with a stagnant pool problem. Um, sometimes you'd have a team where there was not sufficient expertise and you have a group of people who don't know what they're talking about sharing their ignorance, sadly. Um, you know, in other words, they don't have somebody there to kind of like throw something into the pond and get a ripple going across that going like, ah, that's a really different way of looking at it, to bring new knowledge or new questions in. And so having somebody from another team come and ask stupid questions, half the time that's what I'm doing, I'm strategically using my ignorance, the fact that I don't know your code and don't know your company and don't know your, you know, your projects and the intention of your products is actually potentially my biggest advantage. So that's, that can be from somebody from a different team. Now, they have the advantage of at least knowing the company and, you know, we have a better system. Mm. Um, here, borrow this. Mm -hmm. Just little opportunities like that. In this particular case, that's what I'd recommend, is that, that meeting of people, getting people together, um, just to talk about random stuff sometimes even. Yeah. I've seen that work really effectively in a few places is to give people that opportunity and make it be a normal thing for people to move between teams. Yeah. Not necessarily permanently. Uh, yeah, I've, I've definitely seen that one. It gives people a bit of a boost. It's a bit of a change, particularly if people feel a bit stale. They feel like their career's not going anywhere. For them to experience other technologies, other bits of the domain, other whole domains. Hmm. Exactly as you say, it means that they get to ask simple questions. They stir the pot up a bit. They force people to think and explain in a way that they might not have had to otherwise. But they also bring their own fresh perspective and experience and skills and get to appreciate their own 
own skills as well that sometimes they don't realize they even have yeah. you know oh this is something that i can use to provide value elsewhere and it does it stirs everything up yeah i think i think that's really i mean that is important and it's a, it's that shift in perspective the necessary shift in perspective it doesn't have to be permanent as you say mm-hmm. and i've seen that work with companies where you know oh we borrowed this person into this team for a while and, and so on and that's been really good when change is forced upon people there is also a real pushback so and I remember this. This was the early 2000s. It was one of the first pieces of kind of agile training that I was asked to do. And I'd just been doing some kind of technical coaching at a company. You know, honestly, I'm not even sure we called it agile because I don't even know if the agile manifesto existed at that point. But we were kind of we were basically saying, right, we're using XP ideas and we're blending. Oh, and let's just for the benefit of our listeners, XP is extreme programming. Not to be confused with Windows XP. Yes, exactly. It's the kind of technical offshoot of agile. It's the idea that you would have continuous integration, test driven development, pair programming and that you would um, put your people first. I think that's a reasonable quick summary that's a fair summary yeah although i would say time-wise it predates i mean it's, it's not an offshoot it's really agile was an offshoot of xp oh that's interesting kent beck once said you know he regarded uh, the early days of the agile movement as a marketing campaign for extreme programming mm. i came across xp in the late 90s and the agile manifesto was created uh 20 years ago this month actually so back then in the early days of Agile, when people were talking Agile, they were pretty much talking extreme programming or some derivative or relationship of it by default, particularly if they were developers. That's that's where they'd be coming in from. And so I ended up doing this workshop um, via an intermediary who didn't know what to do with it because they'd never heard of this stuff. They were a traditional training shop. And it's just like, we've been given this request. We don't know what to do with it. And it's just like, oh, wow, this is great. I thought this company's been really innovative and really forward looking. That's great. And I was really fired up to do this workshop. I arrived. There was such indifference in the room. Mm. This was not their idea. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I could sense the culture. If they'd been told, you know, Hey, the sky's blue. They'd say no, it isn't. They were they were they were at odds with the powers that be. Basically, there was a real antagonism there. Change it kind of has to be owned. Whether we regard one person regards it as necessary or not, it really does have to be owned because no matter how good it is, it will be rejected. You know, so antibody style. It's just mm-hmm. if that antagonism um, or indifference exists within an organisation, there is change that they need, but it's not the change they think they need. And it's a cliche as well, isn't it, that somebody's going to change, they have to want to change. Yeah. I mean, you know, people talk about it in the context of addiction and lots of other contexts. You can't force somebody to change. They have to want to change. Yeah. I mean, humans are funny creatures. There's that idea that where there is conscious change, we have to want it. But subconscious change, we don't actually have to want it. This is kind of the space of kind of, you know, nudge psychology and all the rest of it. All of this kind of stuff, this takes time. Let's talk about an example. So if we go back to your example of the company where you had two teams next to each other, one had really good practices, the other one didn't. Okay, so the team with really good practices, when I first visited them, it was it was just for kind of code review um, originally and design help. One of the first things I kind of noticed was their code was quite verbose. So I kind of gave them a few hints and tips and concrete pieces of advice. They ended up, they had some of the best unit test coverage, the the best review techniques. So in other words, this was a process that took years. 
It was not to do necessarily with the brilliance of the individuals. They were very good at working together as a team. Mm -hmm. They were very good at becoming brilliant. There was no flick of a switch. I mean, they had moments of insight and all the rest of it. But also there were sort of lessons along the way. I remember having this wonderful session with one guy there. And he said, oh, look, let's look at what the compiler's producing. And he just told me all kinds of stuff I didn't know. And it was just like, you know, that was so cool. <laughs> From my point of view, I learned a bunch of stuff. But that's the point, is that they change was not consistent. It was not perfect. They did not arrive fully formed, dropping out the pages of a book. They were filled with accident and opportunity. And they kind of owned it. Mm. And I, I just remember the, the first time I ever kind of changed role, you know, way back when I was actually technically young, um, changed from uh, one job to another. And I remember having this really weird experience in the first couple of months of my new role of having this wave of knowledge rush over me, mm. um, which is a lovely feeling. It turns out it was just a reappraisal of everything that I had previously been doing. It was just like, oh, that means, and I suddenly saw everything I had previously done in a completely new light because of the new perspective. Yeah, yeah. And I had a similar experience when I was contracting for a while and I was doing short-term contracts. And at first it was terrifying. And then it was incredibly stimulating because every time I joined a new company and a new code base with not exactly the same technologies, there'd always be at least one technology in there that I hadn't worked with before. And that was scary because I was being paid a lot of money to supposedly be an expert. But then it was incredibly stimulating because what I realized was that I could use all of the knowledge and experience that I'd gained to learn new things more quickly and more effectively. Yeah. I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm pretty choosy about who I'll work for, but there's lots to love about Made Tech. We're software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people. There's a real passion to make a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech, M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. And if you go to madetech.com slash resources slash books, you'll find that we have a couple of free books available, Modernizing Legacy Applications in the Public Sector and Building High-Performance Agile Teams. We're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. You can find out more about that if you go to madetech.com slash careers. If you join our mailing list, you'll get extra podcast content as well as finding out more about Made Tech. You'll find a link in the description. Before we return to the interview, here's a quick recap of what we were talking about before the break, which was personal change in the context of changing jobs and how that can refresh your perspective and highlight how much you've learned. When you're thinking about balancing change, do you kind of have any overriding principles that you think about about how you do that? What is a healthy way of approaching change so that you can anticipate it and make it be effective? I think, yeah, there are no easy answers here. And part of the balance is the idea that sometimes what you want is one thing to be stable and the other thing to change. You know, this is kind of like music. It's, it's a case of there is this idea that, you know, give me the steady bass line and the beat and I will jam over it. But if you start messing about with the beat and the bass line, if we're not on the same page, then it all goes to hell. Yeah. You kind of need to have, right, what's my bass line here? You're trying to introduce change, but still there is stability. That's got to be firm. Your hand hold, your foot hold, whatever it is 
there has to be something there. So first of all, are you aware that there is a conflict that you want both, that you want change and you want stability? Mm-hmm. What's the bit you're going to keep stable whilst you're changing everything else? What's the fixed point that you're working at? And that was one of the things that was kind of back in the XP kind of era. There was a lot of talk because the name extreme, it kind of comes with the territory. People saying, oh, we're going to be completely radical and do everything. You know, it's the extreme sports metaphor, um, you know, jumping out of airplanes and parachutes and all the rest of it and snowboarding down the mountain whilst getting a compile to work. Actually, this idea of how do we introduce XP into a team, maybe that's the wrong question. Um, maybe the, what, what's the effect you're trying to get? Um, how do we introduce pair programming, particularly with there's resistance to that? Well, I said, well, okay, well, let's, let's pick out First of all, why do you want to do pair programming? What about reviewing? How do you do review? Oh, well, you know, somebody does this and we make a pull request and da-da-da and then they email and it's just like, oh, no, there's no people there. Mm. You've optimised it to the point it's non-optimal. Asynchronous review, I really, honestly, I don't think it's a great idea. I agree. It's not that people can't make it work. It's just you've got an opportunity here to have a conversation and Mm -hmm. you just turn that flatly down. Yes. And it's not efficient on your time. That is an illusion. Yes. People have a very poor perception of their time. Get somebody there, you know, on a call, in the room, whatever it takes, and talk through the code. Yeah, but that's slow. Yes, of course it's slow. That's the point. It's to stop you rushing around, failing to see things. Yeah. In other words, what we're actually talking about is pairing. But we've given it a little more richness and purpose. We're talking about knowledge exchange. We're talking about social interaction, all of these kinds of things. So, Mm. and all of these are kind of, they're all very modest rather than extreme. So if there is an overriding principle, it is understanding the people also understand that where you wanted to start changing may not be the right place. It is also understanding that when you're asking about change, you need to also be asking what is the thing that we don't think should change. We talk about disruption a lot, which is kind of like misappropriates what the disruption um, metaphor was originally intended for. And these days, disruption just basically means going in, making a mess, um, not really understanding the consequences of what you're doing (laughs) and doing it all in the name of a startup. Um, uh, And exceptionalism, particularly startup exceptionalism, oh, we're different. No, you're not. You're you're a group of people. And we we have a history. We have a recorded history of how people do and don't work effectively. Mm. So there are some things that don't change. you You've got a group of people here and you're trying to do technology. There is nothing new in that at all. This story is very old. Understand, you know, are you aware of this conflict that you have? And that, again, is is that thing. I don't think most people are. Yeah. They pay lip service to it, but really they don't genuinely understand that people simultaneously want change and not change, that that is the core of this. Yes, yes. And I did want to talk a little bit about, we were talking earlier about breaking the fourth wall and suspension of disbelief. And I know that you and I both really care about storytelling. Yes. In fact, that's how we met. It is. It is. So we met at a conference in a bar where we were drinking whiskey and we got talking to each other about the fact that we both write fiction. Yep. Yeah. And I think storytelling can have a much bigger influence and already plays a much bigger role in the world of work. I'm not even just going to say IT than people realise that what we have been doing today as we've been talking is we've been telling stories. You've been telling me about examples of the principles that you're talking about and therefore they become more meaningful. You've been telling me about people and their emotions. Yes. And I'm just interested in, you know, how much do you consciously use storytelling as part of your job, do you think? I think that's a really interesting one because I don't think I necessarily use it as consciously as it might appear, except when people reflect it back to me, as you've just done. (laughs) In other words, I think that that's kind of got 
woven into the fabric of how I think and how I talk about things. Yeah. There is the idea that a, a story is about a situation. We start here, there is conflict, there is whatever, and there's resolution at the end. There is some kind of insight that perhaps we're leaving somebody with, but we've gone through a journey. Yeah. And, and we've seen things. And that is very much how I tend to organise my talks these days, sometimes people are very tempted to do a very hierarchical approach, mm-hmm. the classic bullet point approach. And top-down destructuring is kind of intrinsic to a lot of software ideas. So if I do the big upfront design methodology and I draw all the boxes, I can come up with a really good design. But how do I get to that? In other words, what does time do here? What is the effect of time? If I end up saying I've got 10 components, do I build one component at a time? It turns out that's not as smart as we think it is. The Lego brick model doesn't really work. The question is, perhaps I should be building five of them, but half of each of the five. It, that's a little more useful. It's a bit more like a champagne fountain, if you like. It, it's filling things out simultaneously. It's more like sketching the shadow into the drawing mm-hmm. rather than saying, I'm just going to draw the hand over here and then I'll draw the arm and then I'll do that. It's like, no, I've got a rough sketch. Now I'm going to do some of the shading so I get a sense of where the light falls and perhaps any adjustment to what I've got. Mm. You know, I show you the finished picture, but that doesn't show you how I drew it. And how time flows and things change is the essence of what a story is. Yeah. And that's kind of reinforced of this idea of like trying to take somebody somewhere so they know that they got there, they know what they saw, they know where they started, and, you know, the story has a beginning, middle, and end. Mm. And when I talk about testing, I even talk about that. What's the, what's the story your test is trying to say, or your set of tests? Mm-hmm. Which test do you want somebody to read first? You're telling a story about the problem domain. Either it's code-centric or it's a business-centric idea. What's the first thing you want to tell me? As an author, you get to be a time lord. You get to manipulate time for other people and say, well, this was not the first thought I had, but I think it's the first one that will help you get into this, whether it's technical or business, let's put them in an order. And the minute you start doing that, you are you are basically telling a story. Yeah. I think that answers a personal question for me, is the thing I struggled with most, is how do we do this in time? I see where I want to go, but I don't understand the steps in between. And it turns out that that process is, guess what, one of change. Yeah. And back on change again, actually, you just mentioned Agile. And, and of course, it occurred to me that for me, that kind of is what Agile is for. That's what the word agility is about. It's about managing change. Yes. So the way that our sprints are structured, the ceremonies that we have, they're all about encouraging people to think about change, Mm. encouraging people to acknowledge and accept and even celebrate that things are going to change and things should change. So, you know, the idea that you try not to use the waterfall approach because the waterfall approach starts with a design and assumes that in two years' time, nothing will have changed. Yes. Whereas the agile approach assumes that everything will change and it's trying to give you ways of of anticipating and acknowledging and and coping with change and actually building it into your processes. Yeah. But I don't know. I think maybe sometimes people forget that. Yes. They think that it's giving them a set of rules that won't change. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that is, uh, you know, that's certainly one thing that I've encountered. I remember turning up to one company and one person was there and said, well, I'm kind of like from the project management group and basically we want to find out what you're going to say and then we're going to document it, write it and standardise on that. And it's just like, you haven't even tried it. How can you standardise on a thing? What I'm telling you is not for that. I'm giving you the starting point. Sometimes people sort of talk about scrum rituals. Honestly, go and look at extreme programming. That is That was all rituals. Mm. That Those rituals all served a purpose. If you didn't understand the purpose, you were just enacting rituals and you probably didn't really truly understand them. 
And uh, I always think um, when my younger son was very tiny, at one point he was at the kind of uh, the classic kid stage of food redistribution. I mean, we call it mealtime, but actually it's kind of like, okay, here's some of the food gets in the mouth, some of it gets on the face, some of it gets on the floor and the table. One of my least favourite things about small children. But anyway, carry on. Yeah. Yeah. So his older brother, who was four, and would do the kind of like trying to help Mm -hmm. his parents thing. And I remember noting one day that uh, uh, the older boy was watching my wife clear the table. And so he thought he would do it the same way. And my wife was sweeping the crumbs and things from the table. So he could see that. He could see the top view because he's short. He could see the top view. Uh Her right hand is sweeping the crumbs. What he completely missed was the fact the left hand was just beneath the lip of the table (laughs) and she was sweeping the crumbs into her hand. And what he ended up doing was just sweeping all the crumbs straight onto the floor because he could only see the right hand movement. And for me, that's a lot of people trying to do agile as opposed to rather than be agile is what they've done is they've gone and seen, oh, here's a certification scheme or here's the simple rules of Scrum. or safe or something like that and what they're doing is the right hand stuff they've totally missed that there's no point to it unless you put the left hand in place otherwise you're just going through a bunch of rituals yeah the whole point is that those rituals are designed in one sense to be you're allowed to change them that's the first thing that people don't realize you whole you're supposed to and it is this idea that you're trying to it's something more sophisticated it's a simple practice but that's not where it ends that's where it starts and the whole point is that there is more to it than perhaps you first noticed that's the left hand. And a lot of people, you know, we're, we're doing agile and you look at them, it's just like there's a lot of right hand movement there. There's a lot of like, yep, we've got sprints, we've got micromanagement, we've got this. Like, no, 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 this is not really what it's for. A lot of these structures are there to be your baseline. Yeah. You know, that, that's what they're there for. And then you're supposed to jam around it. It's okay not to have complete knowledge because that's the normal human condition. And most of our pain comes from the illusion of having complete knowledge. When we get up in the morning, we work with incomplete knowledge and it turns out we're surprisingly good at it. What we're not good at is when we fool ourselves into thinking we have complete knowledge. Once you're at one with that, once you're settled with that, then now you understand why it is that sometimes a little bit of ritual rhythm, if you like, or structure it's just enough structure to get you started, but that's the starting point. That's not where you're supposed to end. Yeah. And so otherwise you end up with a very dull story. Exactly. And the, and the whole left hand, right hand sweeping the food was yet another example of a story that really helps. Oh, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. And, and it's very visual as well. I yeah. think that really helps. You've got the image, the imagery, and you can keep referring to the left hand and the right hand. So, yeah, lovely. OK, so the, there's a few questions that I ask everybody. Uh, and the first one is, who in this industry are you inspired by? That's an interesting question because I I don't, that's, for all my talk of awareness, it's not something I'm necessarily aware of. Um, (laughs) So let me start with the the long-termers. Yeah. And in terms of people that I've met, as opposed to people that I haven't met, um, there are certainly inspirational figures there. But in terms of the people I've met, there's, I think, a friend recently passed away, uh, Russell Winder, who was uh, sadly passed away uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he, I always found him quite inspiring because he, he hung out in so many different communities. He was originally an academic. He had a, a deep thirst for knowledge, but he would hang out in the Groovy community, the C++ community, the D community, uh, the, the Java community. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he would argue about which was the best Linux distro, so whichever <laughs> community he was at at the time. But he also had a great thirst for knowledge and also made everybody feel welcome. He was involved in the organization of a number of conferences and he was always... Uh, impassioned to help people yeah and that was very present in the way that he worked but he was also passionate against any injustice that he perceived in the world so Mm. from that point of view 
it's kind of like, yeah, th- what would Russell do was one of those um, kind of mental models there. Yeah. But somebody else I found hugely inspirational, very similar kinds of ideas, but actually, again, very different. Linda Rising, mm. who I've known since the late 90s. And I originally met her through kind of the patterns community and the object community. And what I've always liked and been inspired by is what one, you can always have a conversation with Linda. She has immense knowledge and experience that she brings to to everything. She has a genuine scientific curiosity and a genuine sense of she's trying to help people. Yeah, yeah. With this knowledge. She's a knowledge sharer. She wants people to... So she wants it all to work out. And she's so highly regarded that, I mean, I met her in San Diego at an Agile conference a couple of years ago, and there was a whole session that was just Q&A with Linda. Yeah. Because everybody wants to know, what, what does Linda think? Yeah. And it was fascinating. It was amazing. It was, you know, kind of an audience with Linda. Linda's one of the people that I always kind of look to is to say, it's okay to be a compassionate person in this industry. Yeah. You know, that's a good idea as well. <laughs> it's okay to know stuff as well. But I think I described to somebody, again, um, with Russell Winder, it's like he made knowing stuff kind of cool. It's okay. We work in a knowledge-based industry. We can't know everything, but the desire to know and pursue that and to defer to people who know more or to ask people, it, that's okay. That's entirely fine. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. So... This is one where I'm going to ask you to tell me one thing about you that's true and one thing about you that's untrue. And the answer to which is the true one will be shared with subscribers. So go for it. Right. OK, so I share a birthday with Sigourney Weaver. Fantastic. I met Neil Gaiman at Heathrow Airport. At Heathrow Airport. Okay. So, I mean, there's not a lot I can ask you about the shared birth date. So tell me about meeting Neil Gaiman at Heathrow Airport. Um, Oh, this was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but I feel I'm mixing the genres here. (laughs) Uh, That was one of those things that I was sitting there uh, with my laptop open, answering email, and I see this guy and he looks like Neil Gaiman, one of my favourite authors. And I think, oh, he's in the UK at the moment. And... I was about to message somebody and say, hey, guess what? It's Neil Gaiman, my wife, in fact. Uh, I thought, why didn't I get up and go and introduce myself to him? Mm -hmm. So I did. Wow. And was he friendly? Uh, Exactly as you'd expect. Yes, very much so. (laughs) Of course. Fantastic. Okay. So what is the best thing that has happened to you in the last month or so, either work-related or non-work-related? Work has been somewhat predictable. Um, It's all happened at my desk. Um, Possibly dropping my son back at university. That was uh, that was nice. Not not to be rid of him. uh, Although it's quite clear that he's now transitioned to that stage of like, yeah, he's quite different at home and at university. So, I think the one that probably I yeah best thing probably short story competition that I've entered. You don't know what the theme is until you start the competition. In other words, you're given a fixed period of time, Mm. and depending on the kind of competition flash fiction or short story that could be a number of you know 48 hours or it could be a number of days mm-hmm. and you are given a brief you know your story must be this genre yeah i have a level of there's an unknown what am i going to get and you end up writing sometimes in genres that are unfamiliar you know i would never sit down and say i'm going to write a, a thriller but hey guess what there we go and ultimately there's no consequence if my story is no good then hey guess what i at least there's a new story in the world yeah, that's something that stimulated you enough to have been one of the most enjoyable things you've done in the last month. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a very interesting one. And I was reminded, this is why I like writing. I think the pandemic has been very bad for, for writing because although you have 
sometimes some time it's it's a terrible for inspiration it's terrible for your mental point of view the the mental freedom you might otherwise enjoy with uh, creative acts mm. so this was kind of like a real reminder yeah i like this stuff it was fun yeah i think a lot of people have struggled with that there's this idea that you have more time so therefore you ought to be able to do amazing things with it but but what you don't have is, is the inspiration or the motivation or a lot of the other things that you need yeah. time on its own is not enough yeah i think that's one of the things that again is that 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 learning thing is like oh time was not the only thing mm. we like to attribute things to time and i think that is true in all walks of life we like to say i don't have enough time and i'm i'm certainly somebody who said stuff like that mm-hmm. but we've been running this huge i was going to say controlled experiment but it's rather uncontrolled um <laughs> yeah. planet-wide experiment and we've discovered many of us individually have discovered um you know, time wasn't the problem that we thought it was. There's other things here, and, and it's to do with connection and motivation and all these other things. There is a certain Groundhog Day experience that many of us are going oh through. Oh, God, yes. Tell me about it. So, so this was outside <laughs> that. And so that is why, you know, again, likewise, driving my son to Sheffield, it's just like, oh, my goodness, I get to drive somewhere. I know. It's so exciting. I get to go more than 10 minutes away from my home. Mm-hmm. That was just you know, utterly thrilling. I've had exactly the same experience taking my son to and from London, which is where he's at university. And yes, it's very exciting. (laughs) So where can people find you? And do you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug? I have variously a bunch of online courses that I do. So yeah, I'm always doing public courses. So probably the easiest thing to find me online, um, Kevlin Henney is fortunately fairly internet unique. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, those are probably the places that I'm likely to talk and interact uh, and so on. So yeah, I'm fairly easy to find. Fantastic. Yeah. And it's K-E-V-L-I-N, Kevlin. And then Henny is H-E-N-N, as in N for nobody, E-Y. Yeah, that's the one. Which is pretty easy to guess, in fact. Yes. <laughs> I guess probably the only potential surprise in there is that there's an E between the last N and the Y. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you very much for being here. And uh, hopefully I will see you again at some conference at some point or we can have another call. Yeah. Thank you, Claire. As always, to help you digest what you've just heard, I'm going to attempt to summarise it. So, a Kevlin Henney is an independent consultant, but also an error screen normally seen in a public place. Teams and individuals are always in a constant tug of war with change. They hate it and they love it. And they often disagree with each other about how and why and when. You have to be aware of the conflict that exists in relation to change and that where you want to start change may not be the right place. You need to anticipate the need for change or stagnation can creep up on you. And you need to make conscious decisions about what you want to change and why, and be aware of any trade-offs you're making. But change itself can change. You can change your mind about what you want to change. Change can take time and it can be inconsistent over time. People need to have input into and control over what they're being asked to change. And it's better if people can do change together rather than individually. It helps to keep something stable to balance change. If you start with what you already do and build on that, that can be really helpful. So for instance, if you want to introduce a new habit, build on an existing one. 
Agile methodologies are all about change. You can't standardize and immemorialize your processes, but what you can do is use structures as a baseline and then jam around it. And finally, you can use storytelling principles to design good test suites and to write a good talk. Think about conflict, resolution, and insights. That's not all, we're not done yet, so stick around for some extra content. Every other episode, this last short segment will be devoted to Hack of the Month, where one of my colleagues and in the future our listeners too will share a life or a work hack. Today we're going to hear from Claire Guest, who's one of the engineers who's graduated from our academy programme. So my top tip would be, although it can be really, really intimidating when there's so much that's unknown to you and there's just like this big wide world of technology and you don't know where to start, you can view it as a challenge and an exciting thing. So every day you've got the opportunity to learn a bit more and develop a bit more. And although it only feels like you're making a little bit of progress every day when in like a couple of months you look back and you're just amazed at the amount of stuff you can do now that you haven't even dreamed of a few months ago. Working in the public sector means that at MakeTech we really care about making a difference. So for this final Making Life Better segment, myself and my colleagues will be sharing suggestions for small things we can do to make the world a better place. This one comes from Adam Friday, who is one of our delivery managers here at MakeTech. And he says, walk more. I know we've all probably had enough of walking as it's been one of the few things we've been able to do over this time of restrictions. However, I think it's good to draw positives from this experience and for me, walking has been one of these. I walk to the shop when I can rather than driving. I walk to meet friends. It's better for the planet and it's better for your mental health. Plus, there's nothing like some fresh air. And that's the end of another episode. You can find me on Twitter at Claire Sudbury, which might not be spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire, and Sudbury is spelt the same way as surgery, with E-R-Y at the end. I've got a few talks coming up. If you look at the events page on my Medium blog, which is linked to from my Twitter profile, you'll find all the details there. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Making Tech Bet 2. That's making T-E-C-H B-E-T-T-2. Do come and say hello. Give us your feedback. Give us any contributions you have for future episodes or just have a chat with us. I'd also like to say a big hello and thank you to Joe Ray and Will Gibson, who both left us reviews in the Apple Podcasts app. Reviews make a big difference to us, firstly because we're really eager to hear what you think, but also because it bumps us up the Apple Podcast charts, which then makes it easier for people who haven't heard of us to find us. Thank you to Rose for editing and thank you to Richard Murray for the music. You'll find a link in the description. Also in the description is a link for subscribing for extra content. We'll be releasing new episodes every fortnight. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.